Hi, I'm Max Kaiser. This is the Kaiser Report, the show that always gives you a happy ending. Stacy? Max, I want to show you something. And Google says, this says the good, the bad, and the ugly. It says it in simplified Chinese. I'm sorry if they were wrong and this says something rude or something instead. But we're going to talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly in China. We're not going to talk about the U.S. stock markets and all the chaos going on there. We're going to talk about China because we have to look to the future. First, I want to start with the good, and that is China's Trade Expo logs nearly $58 billion of deals, says state media. The China International Import Expo, CIIE, brought thousands of foreign companies together with Chinese buyers in a bid to demonstrate the importing potential of the world's second biggest economy. Deals for intelligence and high-end equipment were set to total $16.46 billion. State Media China Daily reported on its official Twitter-like Weibo site. Sales agreed for the automobile sector goods hit $11.99 billion, the paper said. It was held from November 5th to November 10th, and agricultural products also sold $12.58 billion dollars at this expo. So they were showing that we also import, we just don't export. Yeah, well, there you go. You know, that was the big um, five-year plan or 10-year plan in China was uh, to transition from an exporting company that was rigging the global forex market by pegging their currency to the dollar in such a way as to make their exports artificially cheap to now, you know, they got this middle class thanks to people at Walmart buying all that Chinese slave-made stuff. And um, now they want to show how they can become import powerhouses to drive the next phase of the Chinese economic miracle. Well, I think they want to stress as well their import potential because they're concerned about more tariffs, not only from the U.S., but from Europe and other nations. So they want to make sure they, they did announce that this uh, expo that they would be reducing tariffs on imported goods, you know, as Dan Collins has pointed out many times over the years here, is that there's a huge tariff on imports of automobiles manufactured overseas, which of course encourages these overseas manufacturers to build plants in China so that they're domestically produced and things like that. So they're basically reducing um, import tariffs on uh, quite a few goods. They obviously also need some agricultural imports from other nations now that uh, the U.S. is off. Basically, they can't import soybeans in particular from the U.S. And they're turning to Russia for a lot of their imports from agricultural goods. So they're just ex basically diversifying their economy and their import-export uh, balance. Well, you know, historically, the path of China's economy in the last 15 years is not different than other countries emerging that were once emerging economies that became big economies, like the United States did the same thing. Uh, they were export exporting at it with unfair advantages until they got big, and then uh, they transitioned to uh, consumer economy. So China and Britain before then did the same thing. So China is just following history. And now they want to become a big consumer economy, and uh, so far, so good. Not very many people note that Germany is a bigger imbalance in terms of their imports versus exports. So I think China also sees that the, the, the imbalance does cause instability, and they famously do not like instability. Uh, Germany doesn't seem to mind it across Europe that the imbalance and the massive 
exports from Germany and the near zero imports has caused a lot of friction and chaos within the financial system across Europe. But I want to also turn to another story showing that signs of perhaps things aren't so good in China. And this is the bad of the good, the bad and the ugly. I tweeted, you can't eat cash, but you can eat ham, right? Or at least some people can. Chinese company pays bondholders and ham instead of cash as domestic defaults soar. Instead of receiving cash, holders of local currency bonds issued by Zhengzhou-based pork producer Chaoyang Agropastoral Group will be paid with the company's ham thanks to an agreement reached between the company and its creditors. Assuming the agreement, which was revealed in a security filing on the Shenzhen Stock Exchange, holds the quote in-kind payments, will only apply to the interest on the bonds, according to the South China Morning Post. <laughs> All right, pick. Pay in-kind. I'm a big fan of this. I remember during the big uh, financial crisis in Ireland when the Troika was demanding payment on those bonds that were illegally procured by the Irish government. I suggested they pay them off in butter because they have a lot of butter. And of course there are companies in the UK, uh, there's a coffee company I believe that's floating some bonds that are the coupon is paid in coffee. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this is paying in kind. Uh, there's nothing wrong with it. There's no shame in it. You got a lot of pigs in China. Let's pay it off with ham. There's a huge demand in China for pork products. But um, in fact, here in North Carolina, it's Chinese owners of the biggest pork manufacturer here, <laughs> manufacturer, grower here in the, in the United States. So they own a lot of the production here in North Carolina. The agreement was struck after the company failed to repay a 500 million yuan bond that was due on November 5th. The spread of African swine fever has caused pork demand in China to plummet, creating a cash-on-hand crisis for pork producers. As of September 30th, the company had 1.3 billion yuan in cash against a short-term debt load of 8.4 billion yuan. They are big consumers of ham, so at least maybe they'll um, you know, put it to use. They, it'll be worth something. Extinguishing debt is the role of true money, hard money. The only currency in the history of the world that has been a true extinguisher of debt with non-counterparty risk is gold. And then beyond gold, there's uh, pork chops and Bitcoin. <laughs> in other words, you can't pay off your debt with more debt. And that's you ends up with Ponzi finance. That's in America, they keep trying to pay off the massive debts with creating more debts. You know, that's the whole Ponzification or financialization of the United States economy, the British economy, most developed economies, it's all debt-based. Ultimately, you run into a problem where you can't pay off any with more creating more debt. Uh, you have to pay off with stuff, you know, to extinguish that debt. Here we've got ham, uh, but traditionally it's gold. And that's why you know, the smart countries are hoarding gold. And that's why Bitcoin is valued equally as gold, because you can extinguish debt with it. We talked about the good. We talked about the bad. And now comes the ugly. No, 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 no. This comes about that how China's peer-to-peer -peer lending crash is destroying lives. So as recently as 2012, the peer-to-peer -peer lending market in China was $1 billion, under $1 billion, in fact. Now it's over $200 billion. So in five, six years, it's grown many, many, many fold. So as many as 4,000 people have lost as much as $117 million as a result of the failure of PP Meow, 
According to Savers, who say they were burned, and many of them have been coming to China's major cities seeking restitution. More than 400 peer-to-peer -peer lending platforms collapsed from June through August, according to Shanghai-based researcher Yankang Group. That still leaves about 1,800, a number Chinese investment bank China International Capital Corporation expects to contract to fewer than 200 after more dominoes fall. It's amazing how quickly it's unraveling, said Zenon Zapron, managing director of Shanghai-based consulting firm Zapronasia. We're just at the start of what could be a very messy reconciliation in the P2P industry. Well, first of all, PP Meow would be an excellent brand name for kitty litter. <laughs> yeah. PP Meow Meow, PP Meow Meow, Meow Meow P, Meow Meow P, right? True. They could always pivot. Pay in kind, pay in cat litter. <laughs> okay, you got a P2P scandal unfolding, it's all falling apart, pay back in cat litter. You know, it's a lot of cash, it's a lot of cat litter. This reminds me of micro lending in Bangladesh. You know, it started off Grameen Bank, great idea. It's capitalism working for the greater good. But it got, you know, taken over by sharks, by Wall Street sharks, and the interest rates skyrocketed and it collapsed. Here, P2P lending on paper works. I mean, it's a good idea. You are taking the um, need for people to save money, uh, combining them with the people's need to borrow money in a P2P marketplace, and you're getting rid of the, the rapacious banks. And it works, it's great. But what happens is, you know, the sharks come in, they, they take it over, and they ruin it, and now it's going to collapse. And I, it sounds like this is going to cause a multi-trillion dollar fandango. Well, it, it's multifold what happened here. There is a lot of fraud going on. Uh, obviously, it, it grew from $1 billion to $200 billion in six years. There, there was a global liquidity crisis that has been happening, and the, the Chinese government did um, crack down on leverage and over-leverage after the financial crash when they injected a lot of money and then so there was a they cracked down on the small investors and small and medium-sized enterprises so they had to turn to the peer-to-peer -peer market and that has become uh, laden with fraud in fact they they are they have warned investors the Chinese government and regulators have warned investors that they could lose everything Although not all troubled P2P platforms are accused of fraud, officials have said that many failed sites needed cash coming in to pay money going out. In other words, they were Ponzi schemes. Other sites attracted investors for only a few weeks before the owner ran away with the money. And they also expanded. So it used to be mostly, um, you know, people looking for money for their wedding. They needed the money up front, and then they would pay them back in an interest, and that was like smaller amounts. But then these days, P2P sites offer investments in what's called commercial bills, or bankers' acceptances, which are like short-term bonds issued by small businesses. Such bills issued by companies and guaranteed by commercial banks are usually part of business transactions, and a bill can be sold to another financial institution or to the central bank before it matures. In some cases involving allegedly fraudulent P2P platforms, investors have claimed that the underlying bills didn't exist, and the money never went where it was intended. Right, uh, okay, take a platform that makes cash, on a very easy transaction, matching lenders and, and borrowers. And then you use that to, uh, to collateralize um, <laughs> money raising. Yeah. And, and so the bonds that are sold against the platform gets ever escalating in pyramid scheme until it blows up. I mean, that's, that happens frequently. It's highly predictable. But again, don't blame capitalism. Capitalism is not the problem, it's fraud. 
Well, the Chinese government is worried because there are thousands of people showing up in cities across uh, China demanding their $10,000 or $20,000 back. Um, you know, these are small farmers out in the middle of nowhere showing up in the cities and, and causing riots because they've been defrauded by some exit scam. Right. And uh, so a billion Chinese people listen to Uncle Max buy Bitcoin. Well, we got to take a break, and when we come back, uh, we will be celebrating the joyousness of the second half. Don't go away. Welcome back to the Kaiser Report. I'm Max Kaiser. Time now to turn to Tyler Jenks, the inventor of Hyperwave. So, Tyler, welcome. Thank you very much, Max. You it's know, it's great to have you on the show because we rarely get people on the show with this, you know, experience that you have. And when you have experience on Wall Street and you survive as long as you do, it's because you must be doing something right. There's very few people, actually, who can claim uh, longevity in this topsy-turvy world we call money management. And, uh, and you recently got involved with Bitcoin, and we're going to get to that. Good. But beforehand, I'll just say that you've been uh, managing money for a long time, big institutions, big money, very successful. So we won't go into the details there. Great. But let's talk macroeconomics. So we, um, one of your charts over there on Hyperwave is the, I think the most, for me, the one I've been talking about, a very important chart. This is the, uh, this is, I think, the 10-year bond yield. Yes. Uh, which has gone down for 37 years, right? and it looks like it's heading up, yes. and I believe your work suggests that the bond bull market is uh, finished. Yes. Okay, so yes. let's talk about that, because this is the key metric driving the entire global economy. In my view, I'm curious what you think. Take it away, Tyler. I agree completely. Uh, this, this is the single most important uh, element of where we are today, uh, and we've dodged bullets since uh, 1944 through all kinds of mechanisms but the real problem started in the year 2000 with Alan Greenspan because he responded in a way that the Federal Reserve had never responded before and then he passed it off to Bernanke who passed it off to Yellen who passed it off to Powell and they're all doing the same thing which is the only thing they can do and I wrote uh, some things recently that basically said uh, I am in awe of what they were able to accomplish. However, in accomplishing those things, they have left us in a much more dangerous situation. Okay, so back up for a second. Here. So we referring to the Greenspan put. Yes. In other words, when any time markets were down a little bit, he would ease ease the uh, credit, ease the money, exactly. to keep the party going, and his response to that was, well, you know, our job is not to try to predict which way this economy is going or the markets are going or to have any kind of proactive stance whatsoever. We're just here to clean up after the mess. Exactly. Which is in contravention of what, let's say, a Paul Volcker, who took his role as central bank seriously and said, you know what, we're going to raise rates because there's this inflation problem. And uh, that would ostensibly be the role of a central bank. Um, so if they're not going to be proactively engaging in lender of last resort and becoming the buyer of first resort for these government bonds, effectively the, what they did was he became a hedge fund. Yes. Is, that, is that a fair statement? Yes. What um, happened at the peak of the chart you just held up was Paul Volcker. So you hit that right on the head. That was the end, basically, of what had been a 40-year increase in interest rates and inflation. And we don't need to go into the details of it, but 
that pinpointed the top. And interest rates and inflation have been dropping ever since. So the Federal Reserve, in order to keep the party going, dropped rates down to zero and kept them there too long under Greenspan. From 2003 all the way to 2006 until we created a bubble in the housing market and the mortgage market. And uh, what you are really seeing the Fed do is they are attempting to keep growth going through bubbles, asset bu bubbles. And they took the form of mortgages and real estate. Now they're taking the form of stocks. Who knows what's next? I don't believe there is a next. I think we're at a terminal point at which that game continues to work. Okay, so the bubble of bubbles, it has popped. And that's a call that we have had many folks on this show make, that bond market rallies over. I'd say over the past five years, almost every major economist in the United States and around the world has made that call and been wrong. Uh, you know, it's famously called a widow maker. Right. That you, know, you go short bonds and they continue to rally, interest rates going down, right. and it's been a horrible trade. Um, but you're kind of putting a pin in it and saying, here we are. And, and based on your work on Hyperwave, which we'll get to in a second, but before we do, I wanted to ask your opinion on something because you are uh, somebody who has mastered the game, I guess you could say. What, what do you make of this unprecedented incarnation of negative interest rates? It, it, it came out of nowhere. There, it's never been in any textbook ever written in the right. history of economics. And right. suddenly governments are offering bonds with a guaranteed loss, negative interest rates. Right. Shouldn't that have been a signal of some sort, um, uh, Tyler? Absolutely. Once you get down to zero, the theory says you can't go any lower and central banks have proved that wrong. At one point, it's not there anymore, but at one point, 30% of all central banks and the, their country's currencies had negative interest rates, mainly in Japan, mainly in the UK, Germany for a very short period of time. The US hasn't gone there yet, but it doesn't really matter. Everybody else has. By following our central bank's lead of keeping interest rates at zero for years and years and years and years. And what that does is um, it assures as long as there's some growth that business will continue to grow because banks will continue to grow because banks are getting free money and they play the spread called the net interest margin between what the Federal Reserve will loan them, which is the only thing the Federal Reserve can do. Just one little aside here. A lot of people think the Federal Reserve moves interest rates up and down. They do not. Uh, the market moves interest rates up and down. The only thing the Fed can do is change overnight lending rates between themselves and Federal Reserve banks right. around they, the I mean, country. It's fair to say they control short rates. Short rates. Okay, but medium, medium to long rates, they have no, they, the market Exactly, or even 180 day or commercial paper at 30 days. They don't control that, the market does. However, if the banks that are borrowing at zero can lend at 25 basis points or 50 or 100, they make a lot of money, which then they can loan out, that gets businesses going, and you can create growth artificially. Okay, the problem is that it leads to malinvestment. Absolutely. In other words, if you have uh, corporations, let's say banks, that are technically insolvent, if they can continue life by borrowing from the Fed at zero or less than zero, in the case of J.P. Morgan, they were borrowing at less than zero. They were being paid by the Fed to borrow money. That's right. So That's if, exactly right. Right. So same with Deutsche Bank, same with all these other big all banks. All around the world. Right. So 
it leads to, so that they determine that this is growth and all growth is good. But that would be like saying, Mr. Jones has cancer and it's good because it's growing. The cancer is growing and the faster the cancer grows, the better for Mr. Jones, right? That's right. That's, Does that, that make any that's, sense? That's exactly right. It, it all sounds totally counterintuitive and stupid, but that's the world we live in. And unfortunately, there's an endpoint to that, and the endpoint's mathematical. It's when the interest on the debt gets to the point that growth can no longer pay it off. And there's a very simple way of looking at it. Productivity grows at 3% per year forever. It doesn't get higher, it can get lower, but at 3% it maxes out. GDP tends to average 3% per year. Why? Because of productivity growth. And it doesn't matter if we have the internet or chips or technological advancements or the industrial revolution, productivity does not get above 3%. So that's a cap on the reality of macroeconomics. What happens if inflation and interest rates get to a point that they're paying against a debt that the calculation of which the interest can never be paid off. We are there now. We weren't in 2000, we weren't in 2006, 7, and 8, but we came close. And therefore, the Fed had to start new programs that had never been done before and are not in their purview to do, but nobody would say no because we were fighting our way out of a mess. Right, so in other words, the way to pay down the debt, according to some folks, let's say supply-side economics, economists would be, well, we're going to um, encourage this growth at any expense necessary uh, because the resulting tax revenues are going to help us pay down the debt. That never happened. That was a canard. That was false. Uh, but you're saying that looking deeper into this, now that the interest on the debt, which is half a trillion dollars in the U.S. and growing pretty That's right. Pretty It'll sharply. be a trillion dollars shortly. Right. Um, and if you just apply that to the hard math, the, the hard reality of productivity cap, which is 3%. Um, therefore, once you establish that the interest on the debt, forget about the debt, right. just the interest right. on the debt mathematically cannot be paid down, right. you are entering into a currency crisis. So yes or no? Yes. Okay, so why is the dollar rallying? Because, Mr. Smarty Pants? Because the dollar is the strongest among the weak. And as long as it remains the strongest among the weak, it will keep going up. As long as everybody else's interest rates, productivity, and growth are lower than ours, the dollar will go up. And it's going up very, very quickly, which causes other problems. There are only four solutions to this problem. Bitcoin happens to be one of them, in my opinion, and I think in yours. But that's not the most probable outcome. The most probable outcome is we have to go back to a gold standard. And we can talk about that as much detail in as short a time as we can. There are two other alternatives. One is you can grow your way out of it. But that means you've got to grow at least 3%, which we've finally just hit after 10 years of trying to under the new administration. And most people believe, and I think rightfully so, that can't last for very long. So you can grow your way out of the problem as long as you get above 3% or above the inflation rate at now 2% that's going higher. If the inflation rate catches up with that growth rate, that's the end of the party, which then brings you to the next possible solution. Number four, door number four. Default. 
Yes. Governments will have to say, these pensions that I owe you, government employees, corporations will have to say, the pensions that we owe you, we can no longer pay. What happened in August of 1971 to the U.S. government bond market? Well, basically... They defaulted. That, that's exactly right, and also the, Russia, the, uh, the, the Russian ruble... Shutting of the uh, gold window. It, it happens every once in a while, and it's very rare. It must happen again if we don't go back to a gold standard almost immediately or hopefully a Bitcoin standard. And that's why I am so intrigued by Bitcoin. Uh, right. So uh, we're going to get extensively into Bitcoin, I guess. We'll t carry this over to a second segment. Um, but uh, before we do, uh, let's talk geopolitically again. So with Japan, how uh, of all the basket cases in the world, two stand out, Japan and Italy. Right. Uh, Japan's got debt to GDP of over 300%, I believe. Uh, Italy is part of that crumbling EU mess that we saw happen with Greece and, and other countries. Well, of those two, which is the most likely to trigger the next leg of the financial crisis? Or is there another scenario uh, that you see that is more pressing? Um, I don't know. Those are black swan events, and I, I know that's a cop-out. But um, Japan has the ability to keep this game going forever. And the reason is because they went into recessions slash depressions slash uh, real estate uh, depressions starting in 1989, and they're still in them. Um, and that was a hyperwave. Uh, what happened in Japan going up for the 20 years preceding 1989. All right, got to cut you off there. We're going to pick it up with Japan yep. in, in the next segment. But thanks for being on the Kaiser Report. Yeah. All right. I love it. Stay, Thank you so stay there. much. Don't go away. That's going to do it for this edition of the Kaiser Report with me, Max Kaiser, and Stacey Herbert. I'd like to thank our guest, Tyler Jenks of Hyperwave. If you want to catch us on Twitter, it's Kaiser Report. Until next time, bye, y'all.